Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. He is stepping out, and I am your host, Ethan Hatcher, filling in with my fine associate, the Tony Kennett from Chalkboard Review. Together, we are uh, temporarily replacing the inimitable talents of one Tony Katz, and boy, we've got a lot to discuss on the show for today. Unfortunately, beginning with a little bit of tragedy, of course, it's soggy here, but nothing like our neighbors to the south in Kentucky, where the casualty rate continues to climb now to 30, including a family where four children were lost, and I can't imagine the enormous devastation there. Also, of course, on Sunday in Elwood, Indiana, a police officer wounded at a routine traffic stop at two o'clock in the morning. Tony, oh, that's heartbreaking. It really is. It's, it's terrible to, to see. It's, it's terrible for his family and especially after the officer's service. Um, not too long ago, actually graduating from uh, officer training himself. I just I'm April can't April of last year. And it, it, it's such a routine traffic stop. Not it's definitely not something he was expecting. And, you know, especially on the intersection of State Road 37 and County Road 1100 North in Madison County. Uh, it's just a tragedy. Uh, there's no other way to, to put it. And that's why officers have to stay on their toes no matter what the interaction is, because you don't know what is going to be on the other side of that traffic stop, as unfortunately he found out. And that was after five years of military service prior to becoming an officer. So this is an individual who had spent a good portion of his unfortunately very young life in service to others. And in contrast, the Associated Press noted that the suspect had a criminal record, which included a conviction in 2000 for firing a gun at Indianapolis officers. He's been there before, and th this is an issue that unfortunately comes up frequently on the various shows on WIBC is the idea of recidivism, and especially lacks prosecutors who frequently let uh, wrongdoers go with little to no punishment at all. There's an incredible amount of weakness in central Indiana when it comes to the prosecution of mm -hmm. criminals, and th this kind of violence has turned moderate Democrats over in storm against uh, those that are running these prosecution offices in these heavily populated areas. And it's a tragedy when this occurs, but this is something that could have been prevented. And I've heard, you know, the more of the progressive argument come out, well, if there were no guns, then this wouldn't have happened. Okay, if we have to look at the two options in front of us, which is hiring a prosecutor who actually defends his city, who actually puts criminals behind bars for longer than 15 minutes and a slap on the wrist, that's a lot easier of a problem to solve than walking out with a basket and collecting pistols like it's offering at a Baptist church. It's also weird to me that Democrats think that wholesale gun bans are a solution to the problem when clearly banning drugs hasn't worked. I mean, if we're going to look at the war on drugs to inform our opinion on how that would go, I mean, by any objective measure, drugs won the war. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's the people that end up paying the price do often seem to be those law abiding individuals who aren't able to defend themselves any longer after mm -hmm. those kind of guns are taken away from them. Of course, looking at the ramifications of the assault gun ban in 1994. We're going to be talking about that later on the show, so stay tuned to Tony Katz today with your hosts Ethan Hatcher and Tony Kinnett filling in for Tony Katz on the program. But want to dive into what uh, doubtlessly our listeners 
are most anxious to hear about, which is the updates to the abortion bill that passed through the Senate, surprisingly, on narrowly. Saturday, in very narrowly, um, with the barest minimum of votes, 26 to 20 necessary to advance the bill to the House. In the hours before my program, Saturday Night on the Circle, broadcast from 7 to 9, you can catch that podcast at saturdaynightonthecircle.fireside.fm, by the way. A spiffing show, if I say so myself. Mm, quite spiffing. <laughs> but that said... Um, of course, this is going to be very contentious. It seemingly pleases no one. Um, there oh, are, shocker. <laughs> because, of course, pro many pro-life advocates say it doesn't go far enough, and pro-choice advocates say that it's a near-wholesale ban restricting it to uh, rape, incest, and life of the mother. And there's also questions, I feel legitimately, from the medical community about what that entails specifically. Mm that is potentially troubling to healthcare practitioners. So let's get started, uh, Tony. What do uh, what say you about the narrow passage of this bill? Well, I think it's really interesting with all of the complaints that have come forward. Of course, before this entire thing hit the floor of the Senate, uh, there were all of these criticisms from the Indiana Democratic Party, from Drew Anderson all the way over to the abortionist advocates, uh, saying that, well, this is just all terrible and Republicans are going to force raped women to give birth and incest situations. And then the bill came forward, which had those specific protections for it. And so the average person would say, oh, so, you know, they've acceded to that request. They've considered that restriction. No. And the truth of the matter is it never had anything to do with cases of rape and incest for Democrat voters and for, for Democrat uh, abortion supporters. It's always been a case of they want it completely open and then they want it celebrated, judging by all of the various measures over the last couple of years of shouting your abortion and, and celebrating how wonderful it is. And, and that, I think, is where why we've ended up here is the fact that no limit was acceptable. The fact that abortion on demand from conception to live delivery and in some cases passed, passed. if you listen mm -hmm. to Ralph Abortham over there in uh, Virginia. Right. Like, oh, well, we're going to have a discussion about what to do with the life of the child after it's delivered. Yeah, making uh, sure it's safe and comfortable until you tighten the noose. We have a term for that, sir. It's called infanticide. That's not even abortion conversation well, let's at that not, point. Let's not hold infanticide just only at that situation. That's what you are charged with. You're charged with a double homicide if you kill a pregnant lady. But what I haven't heard in any situation so far are any individuals actually determining scientifically biologically when a life begins because if you start from that foundational point the rest of the argument becomes moot you don't have to bring in feelings you don't have to bring in exceptions if you simply start at the scientific point that biologists can agree when a human life begins at that moment its rights go into effect because at that moment it begins well, see, I hear here I feel is where we diverge because I am a supporter and I know I'm the odd man out at this station on 93 WIBC, but I believe that women should have the freedom to make their own reproductive choices within certain limitations. I don't believe in wholesale abortion from conception to delivery, but I'm comfortable with maybe the point of viability. And I think most European countries are consistent with that somewhere in the realm of 15 to 20 weeks and uh, old pro-choice, you know, sucking the brains out of defenseless fetus is Ethan over here thinks that Indiana could do with trimming its current standard by at least two weeks because we allow abortion out to 22 weeks and the earliest documented viability is 21 weeks in one day. I individual freedom is one of the most important philosophical axes to me. Absolutely. And I, and I believe that women should have the ability even to make strictly, um, without rape or incest, just strictly uh, family planning decisions that include abortion, most of which, by the way, are not surgical. They're just medicinal uh, performed right. mm -hmm. with a pill. Yeah. 
that's why, at least from my perspective, I agree with the logic and where it's coming from. That's why I center on not a faith-based argument, not a my feelings-based argument, but on a biological fact of when the human life begins. Because once you can set that specific fact that cannot be denied, it can't be turned around, it can't be rerouted in any other specific case, that is when the human life begins, therefore sets forward a whole list of policies that are very easy to write. And then exceptions can be based on statistical data and facts rather than on, well, I really feel this. Oh, well, I really feel this. And it you start coming to it from a foundational perspective instead of going from the top down as well. You know, it's all about reproductive freedom. Well, it's not necessarily about reproductive freedom because excluding cases of rape, it is a reproductive decision to have sex. You are taking a risk. If you go out and choose to have sex, again, this is excluding cases of rape. If you go out and you choose to have sex, you're risking pregnancy. So as far as family planning is concerned, by the facts of the matter, if you are choosing to have sex, you are choosing to run the risk of pregnancy and choosing to run the risk of when that human life begins, which is why I center on the scientific statistical fact. Sex should not be used as an omnipresent threat. It shouldn't it's be. It's not an omnipresent threat. Actions say, have consequences. To say that you're risking, but... <laughs> More fundamentally, I, I, I think that individuals should have the freedom to make their own choices. Um, choices in, free of consequences? Not free of consequence. Only centering your discussion on the pro-life uh, birth argument isn't the full discussion when it— Oh, it's it, not birth. It's when the it beginning point of life. When it excludes the fact that many of these children will be born into situations that are not best suited to human flourishing. And I feel that's where the pro-life argument often runs afoul of fiscal conservatism, which I'm fully in support of. If you're going to be consistent with pro-life values, I think that would also coincide with an expansion of the welfare state, which I oppose. But if you are truly pro-life, then you should center your, not just around the birthing, but also the flourishing of these lives after the fact, especially when in some cases it will be against the wishes of the mother. So, which I don't know why you would stake your argument on wanting a child to be born into a circumstance that's not desired. Well, but once the child is, once the child exists, that argument does in fact become irrelevant. And I do believe personally that it, at least personally as a Christian, I have a responsibility to give privately to charities that support women in really difficult situations. And I do a portion of my money every year. I've worked in the past with women's crisis pregnancy centers and my church as well. And many churches that I've attended in the past. And I appreciate you put people. a lot of that. And I'm not saying that's a requirement. I'm saying that that is the common decency of an individual. I'm not doing anything special. I think that every individual has an onus to participate. Sure, and forward. I appreciate people who are philosophically uh, consistent with their beliefs. Oh but yeah. We ideological consistency is one of the most important factors, but we currently have a system in which children are already being abused and there's not a sufficient answer. So are we supposed it, to go to the orphanages and shoot them down? The line. Putting these children under the foster system is not a solution when the foster so system is already being abused and it's difficult to uh, situate children with homes that they're best suited yeah, for. Yeah, but I mean, you like, don't take out the kid. Problem. Like, you don't take out the kid that's in the difficult situation. I mean, there was a really horrible tweet that I saw recently where this lady said that, look, she grew up in the foster care system. She had a horrible life. Textbook case of someone who has really been brutalized by the system. And she was on Twitter saying she wished she had never been born. And what I saw were all of these people encouraging her, like, you're right, you never should have been born. You should have just been dead. And basically encouraging this lady to commit suicide. If we don't set a standard for when human life begins and that the point, that being the point, then there's no technical difference between a child unborn that may be in a bad situation and a child that is born in, in a bad situation. There's no actual biological set legal point and standard that holds any kind of measurement in terms of exceptions. 
and then also statistical verifiable, or excuse me, statistical verifiable means. And that's kind of the concept that I disagree with you there. Great conversation though. Yeah, well, there's also a question from medical professionals in the exceptions that would be theoretically allowed, uh, like for life of the mother. In this right. case, uh, there's a, a physician in Tennessee where a similar law has already been enacted, Dr. Nikki Zeit expressing skepticism about her ability to perform a routine abortion. And she cited an example where a patient in 2018 had a heart failure problem and uh, chances of fatality rested somewhere between 25 and 50 percent mm -hmm. if she carried the pregnancy to term. She already had three children. And so in at that time when the, uh, the procedure was still legal, they elected to perform the abortion in order to preserve the life of the mother. Now, um, the wording of the language is vague and many physicians fear the only way to determine where the hard lines are is after somebody's arrested. And that's not really a way to perform medicine. So two things there specifically, and that's the, the who's being arrested. And then there's also the case of, of the life of the mother or the life of the child. So the first and most important thing to note is that those cases where it's the life of the mother or the life of the child is a very, 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 very small micro percentage of all cases that abortions are had. So we have to preface that first, because again, this is an eggshell skull case that is being applied to make it a mass policy, so which is a legal fallacy. But if we take a look at this specific instance, I agree, the language should be very precise, so the lines should be drawn very, very articulately and specifically. I don't want wiggle room. And I don't want wiggle room because I, I'm, I'm allowing for exceptions in a certain circumstance. In this case, I want people to know exactly where the laws lie so they don't have to suffer under the stress of, am I doing something illegal or not? Number two, in the case of who's being arrested, there is no case in which I believe that the mother should ever be arrested or charged. I believe that the mothers who are committing abortions are victims of a society that has told them that this is okay, this is normal, this is natural, when it's clearly not. Everything from the hormonal from the hormonal patterns to the psychological patterns that we've seen in mothers getting abortions prove that they naturally instinctively know that they are taking a life. Whereas I think that the doctors, the medical professionals who are performing these abortions are indeed committing murder and should therefore be charged. Don't charge the mother, leave the mother be. She needs love and counseling. The abortionist I think is participating in an act of murder via the biological standard of human life. I mean, I've seen opposing studies that suggest there are no psychological repercussions for the women who consent to an abortion, understanding the procedure. I think it all it should be according to the individual's decision and what best suits them. And if they don't wish to pursue an abortion, having it legal, safe, and optional does not preclude the ab individual's ability to then follow their faith, faith or their own moral standards in that issue. That kind of logic allows for infanticide after the birth. In my opinion. Well, we're, uh, I'd love to continue the conversation. And we honestly, and it's a we great could, conversation. We it's could, we could do a have, whole show. Yeah, disagree just, without yelling slurs at each other. It's quite wonderful. Sure. And we could do the whole show strictly on abortion, but I think that would bore the audience to tears. And we have a lot of content to cover. We really and do. And it's going to continue to be debated in the Indiana General Assembly. I think it's doubtful it will survive the House in its current form, so there will be more room for us to debate. Absolutely. <laughs> As and, it should be. There should be more room to debate. And you need to stay tuned for every minute of it here on 93 WIBC. Ethan Hatcher and Tony, Kitts fill, uh, Tony Kinnett filling in on Tony Katz today. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. I'm your host, Ethan Hatcher. Tony Kennett filling in, and you'll never guess <laughs> who's got the COVID 19. Oh, say it ain't again. So. 
again, President Biden has caught what's known as the Paxlovid rebound. Paxlovid. And he has it's tested like Pax Britannica. Is this like the imperialist virus? <laughs> he's tested positive again. I guess this is something that happens right now. I mean, he's not even sure about what kind of medicine he's taking. Yeah. Millions of Americans have used Paxlovid. Paxlovid, excuse me. Paxloviticus. Paxlovid. <laughs> i tell you what. I, I, I think it's, I used it. <laughs> I think oh, I used it. Paxlovid, including me. All right, so... I mean, at what point do we admit that these uh, precautions have not worked? He's masked. He's socially distanced. He's been vaccinated twice. He's been boosted. I mean, my, what, what, what does it take? And it still hasn't worked. So to clarify, before we dig in, we should probably identify what Paxlovid rebound actually is. So the Paxlovid rebound is a phenomenon in which people who take the drug initially improve only to get worse a few days later. Specifically, people who took Paxlovid experience near complete resolution of their symptoms and begin testing negative on rapid on rapid antigen tests. However, what I want to know here is, yes, it's it's very interesting to see Biden, you know, flunder and flubber over all of this. And it's obviously it's a terrible case of elder abuse with dementia. But it's amazing how the president of the United States, who should be receiving the best care the United States can physically provide anyone, the leader of the free world, and he's slapping right back into COVID right after he have it. This is an embarrassment to our top of staff medical infrastructure. How many days did uh, Trump take to get over COVID? I can't, I can't remember. I'd have, <laughs> see, I'm, I'm having to go back in time. I should have I looked this up. Why am I asking you? I was the one that was doing the show prep. He, he tweeted this, this afterward, and he said, I don't have DNA. He said, I don't have DNA. I have USA. And it was like <laughs> the greatest thing I'd ever seen on social media. I mean, it was like delivering a right hook in a boxing glove just to the entire narrative, and Trump's, it was beautiful. Trump's ability to artfully tap into the cultural zeitgeist was something to behold, but it often backfired. Well, and we'll, it, we'll get into that later He used later a sledgehammer for everything, but sure. in the case of President Biden and COVID, I first of all, I do want him to get better. I do. I don't want him to, to you know, wither and, and die from COVID because I've seen a lot of individuals who have suffered from it. What bothers me specifically in this case is being told that you need 853 boosters and you have to wear a mask and another mask and another mask and a face shield and all of these extra circumstances and contact tracing. And it wasn't enough to keep him from getting it not just once, but twice. And geopolitically, this comes at a fairly precarious time when there are nefarious forces afoot in Taiwan with China. Russia just announced a, a new military doctrine proclaiming the United States as its primary adversary. Uh, the strategic policy of the USA is to dominate the world's oceans, they say, and they're going to uh, expand influence in the Arctic Ocean as a result. So we need our executive to be at the top of his game and not sicken down with the COVID. It's a serious issue and it's something that we need to be keeping at the forefront not embarrassing ourselves at the national stage ethan hatcher and tony kennett here on wibc filling in on tony katz today we'll be back in just a moment Good afternoon and welcome back to Tony Katz Today. Hosting today, yours truly, Tony Kennett and Ethan Hatcher. We've got a lot of great stuff on this show. So much to cover. So much. My goodness, if there could be more things happening over a weekend, I'd be surprised. So 
There's a lot of interesting stuff going on around the world with food processing plants. Have you seen they're burning down, they're shutting down in it's the middle of this crazy. crazy supply shortages as a result? Well, I remember when the height of the pandemic, it was kind of nerve wracking. Remember when the outbreaks were happening at these food processing plants and they'd have to shut down because everybody was getting infected and there were still a lot of question marks over that. And then, yeah, they're burning down, they're shutting down a lot of irresponsible regulatory policies in far left coast states that are driving out these producers. We'll take like California, for example. So the food processing corporation Smithfield Foods is shutting down its Vernon, California plant and scaling back operations in not just California, but also Utah and Arizona. And they announced this on June 10th. It says they're ceasing all harvest and processing operations in Vernon in early 2023 and at the same time aligning its hog production system by reducing its sow herd in its western region. The company said in this news release, this is not the time to be doing this. Food prices are sky-high expensive. You would think that a food processing plant would be going all in right now to meet the demand. Well, the Jim uh, Jim Monroe, their spokesperson for Smithfield Foods, said that it's increasingly challenging to operate efficiently there, and that's why I say pointing the finger at that regulatory environment, because yes, there's more demand than ever, and in some cases inflation is causing pr uh, profits to skyrocket for these corporates, corporations that are supposedly the enemy Ethan, of Democrats and socialists. Hold on a second. Are you <laughs> telling me right here, right now, that it's the corporations that want to provide the products in an efficient way, in a way that's not going to kill the customers because, you know, you want people to buy your product, but it's the regulatory policies keeping them from working? What? <gasps> you mean like the figure. rest of financial and economic history? I know. Uh, it, it's shocking. But, uh, but I mean, we, we, we laugh, and it's obvious to us, but yet these regulatory environments continue to exist, and they plague the manufacturers that are producing some of our nation's core goods Goods. Food, I think, is kind of foundational there, Tony. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, not to pull out the classic American meat card here, but it's it's depressing when my wife comes home and says, you know, I've bought this much bacon today on some kind of a deal. And the deal is like four or five, six dollars for a pound of bacon. Not to, it's like when someone tells you, oh, hey, I got a good, really good deal on gas the other day. I used my Kroger fuel points and I got it down to three eighty five. Right. 385 that's not a good deal that's terrible <laughs> yeah, joe biden rejoicing oh well you know we're down 30 cents hey, from, from our he, pinnacle he told me he doesn't control ta gas prices it's all putin and these greedy corporations that he's regulating the snot out of so he will celebrate a 20 cent decrease and overlook the fact that we're still like what a buck 20 higher than where we were hey last year americans <laughs> saved six cents on a package of hot dogs now that's something to celebrate uh, yeah, there, there's that to celebrate. Unless they can't staff the hot dogs because the food processing plants are shutting down. Uh, womp, 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 womp. And you know what else is uh, getting cut as a result of the pressures faced uh, on manufacturers? This this is upsetting, and I'm torn between whether or not it's a legitimate uh, pull from production or whether they're just teasing us and staging the grounds for a res resounding comeback. Oh, no, you're not talking about the chocolate taco. Choco taco. No. Klondike, oh. the childhood classic. I mean, anytime the ice cream truck is ding, 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 down the road. That was a beautiful impression, by the way. Thank you. It's Choco taco time.
that's you know that was one of my go-to snacks and it appears like many americans felt the same way now bemoaning the loss pulling it from their line according to the spokesperson over the past two years we've experienced an unprecedented spike in demand across our portfolio and have had to make very tough decisions to ensure availability of our full portfolio nationwide a necessary but unfortunate part of this process is that we sometimes must discontinue products even a beloved item like Choco Taco. Read, some of their other frozen treats are outselling the Choco Taco, which I say is bull pucky, sir. Bull pucky. First of all, it's nice to hear someone else actually do the uh, the corporate, you know, uh, uh, elite impression when reading quotes like that. I'm glad I'm not the only one out here that's <laughs> taking that kind of artistic liberty. I'm, you know, there's part of me that wonders if there is a, a corporate media stunt to something like this. I think they did the same with saying. Twinkies back in the day when uh, that certain division was shutting down. And it's somehow telling people that you're taking something away, even if it's a product that's not selling very high, even if it's a product that not many people are going for anymore, to create that kind of millennial and Gen Z demand that's going to bring it back in spades. McDonald's does this cyclically with the McRib, it creating that artificial demand by taking it away. Would you have that crappy rib meat sandwich if it was around every day? No, but no. I, I'll tell you this, though. If you've ever, I know we were talking about this before the show, you're a fellow Binging with Babish fan. Yes. And his McRib version that he did off of the Simpsons episode, I actually got to sit down and make that with the whole smoking the lapsang tea because I can't afford a big, huge smoker. And it was delightful. A lot of his recipes are surprising wins. I have yet to attempt, but I want to, the Polios Hermanos Breaking Bad fried chicken no, recipe. No, just don't do the porchetta because I tried doing that for Christmas, was very excited, and went out and got the pork belly and found out when I got home I had to shave the hair off of, like, the skin of the pig and no it was off. Break out your Gillette razor. It ruined the thing. I didn't know until after I cut. I'm like, man, this isn't right. Babish never says anything about this in the show. But I'm apparently they're bringing the taco back. They're working on a way to to figure out bringing back the choco. They taco. better. They better. Um, another uh, shaking the foundations of your nostalgic uh, childhood. They're taking away the green from the iconic green Sprite bottle. And I'll tell you, Sprite is probably one of my top five favorite sodas there's something about sprite that when it's cold i mean yep. ice cold just feels colder than any other kind of pop you can have superior to seven up in every way i don't care i i like the lemon lime sprite i'm i'm firmly on that side seven of the up tastes like i'm drinking the room that it's been sitting in mm. i don't know how to explain it there's just something about that like kind of sickly sweet room temperatureness even when it's ice cold i somehow still taste stale room temperature air kind of a weird aftertaste but yeah sprite ditching the green bottle supposedly this is to be more environmentally conscious because the green dye precludes it from being uh, included in uh, food recyclable plastics. Is there another kind of green dye that they could use? You'd think that there has to be. I mean, if Crayola can create environmentally friendly crayons, certainly we can find a kind of green dye. Uh, well, I guess the Coca-Cola Corporation is uh, hedging their bets on rebranding. Uh, it's, it's not changing the taste. Now, they did want to make that clear. This isn't a new Coke situation in which they're changing up the formula. It's the same great spread you've always known and love it's just now coming in a clear bottle and a, a different logo I'm starting interested. today by let's the see, way let's see what of, they do as of today let's see what they do i'm, I'm interested in seeing kind of how it goes uh, it, it's starting today i doubt they've made their way to a convenience store yet but i will have to make the rounds and see the new packaging only 2020s kids remember uh green sprite and choco tacos <laughs> is, is that gonna be like that'll uh, be the meme in 2045 oh geez you're already dating me 
I hope not. I'm married. Ah, you're listening to 93 WIBC. Uh, more content to come on Tony Katz today. Uh, so stay tuned. Ninety-three WIBC. Tony Katz today. Ethan Hatcher and Tony Kinnett from Chalkboard Review filling in. Tony, what kind of chalkboards do you like? I mean, it's pretty much a whiteboard world these days. I mean, you know, do, do they mine slate? <laughs> there is something to having a chalkboard in the room. Actually, when I was at Lawrence North High School as a biology teacher, I had a whiteboard in the room and a chalkboard, and I just liked having that readiness. But Chalkboard Review is an education publication that publishes heterodox opinions, and what that means is. Unlike Chalkbeat, Edweek, a lot of other education publications, whether you're on the left, right, center, whether you're a homeschool parent or a seasoned college professor chair of your department, we allow you to write education pieces and takes because we believe that everyone is a stakeholder in education. Everyone should be able to view what's going on in classrooms. And then on top of that, we also break a lot of education news that a lot of the other outlets do not report, including our very own Indie Star, which neglects to report quite a few things. You can find us over at chalkboardreview.com or on our social medias at chalkboardrev. Okay, I see. So you're reviewing the content and not just the physical medium of the chalkboard itself. You know, I would like a niche, uh, a niche uh, point of interest. <laughs> you know, if anyone ever wants to buy me just like a huge, beautiful, classic chalkboard, I would take it in a heartbeat. Those things are beautiful. You'd be surprised how uh, persnickety some professors can be about like the chalk that is used. Apparently there's this one very prominent, uh, now out of business, Japanese chalk manufacturer. And so they have limited stock quantity of the remaining pieces of chalk that were made. I guess it's it's bar, bar none, you know, above above the rest, the best chalk ever. Oh, yeah. There's also an, an author, Jerry Spinelli, who writes a really great book called Loser, which I, I recommend if you're in education, you should definitely read the book Loser. If it wasn't required in your elementary classroom, funnily enough, and uh, the guy in the book, his teacher had this Rolls Royce of erasers, it was called. And I always talked about how teachers preferred this extra absorbent eraser. I never found anything like that. I was more of a, you know, a damp rag kind of man. But uh, alas, look at us prattling on about education when there's China to discuss. Yes, let's circle back to uh, something that we covered earlier in the show. Of course, Biden has uh, come back with come, come down with the COVID-19 again. Mm. It's the Paxlovid rebound, where in some cases, people who'd taken the Paxlovid uh, temporarily recover, they test negative, and then it comes back sometimes worse than before, and we wish him a speedy recovery. But that said, it comes at a precarious time geopolitically. A very precarious time geopolitically. When there are pressures abroad from China, uh, they're exerting its influence over Taiwan, potentially. And also, uh, you, you mentioned Co uh, Kosovo and Serbia and Russia also flexing its muscles. Mm. Problems, Tony. Problems. Well, of course, you have the entire trading problem and also the energy problem that's hitting Central and Western Europe, like sure. Donald Trump predicted back during his administration. Uh, no one's laughing at that now, now are we? Uh, these massive geopolitical pressures require the leader of the free world to be present, to be attentive, and to be ready to combat absolutely anything that comes to bear, not just militarily, but economically and legally. And who are we sending to Taiwan? Who are we sending on a great Asian tour? The jiggling, weird, puppy Yorkshire Terrier Nancy Pelosi. Uh, under all kinds of concerns because of insider trading as it is, is going around to, I guess, put up some kind of a tough front? 
<laughs> it's, it's hard Nancy to Pelosi. I mean, like a stiff wind could blow that uh, windbag over. Uh, despite despite that, I mean, her absolute inadherence to any kind of firm policy. I mean, I'm glad that she's taking a strong stance against China this week. Uh, but it, it's incredibly important for the United States to put up a strong front internationally, whether you're more isolationist or whether you're more on an international, you know, we have a responsibility to keep certain things uh, in a certain way, whichever side of the aisle you're on, as far as that's concerned, the United States needs to have a strong and competent presentation. It also highlights the politically intractable nature of this administration when fr uh, uh, confronted with the pressure of the war in Ukraine and the uh, drain on on energy that that is presenting, the still flat refusal to expand mm. American energy resources is really gross and coming at the expense of you, the consumer. It's displaying their contempt for the average American uh, citizen in, in just a gross display. You know, I hope I'm wrong about this, but it reminds me a lot of the uh, Obama administration's Syrian red line, where we're going to draw this red line in the mm. sand and say, don't you cross this, and they cross the line. Okay, we're going to draw this new red line. Don't you cross this. Putin's not listening. Um, and apparently, you know, if you even question the Ukrainian administration at all, they're calling, you know, Victorian Sparts uh, here in Indiana some horrible Putin puppet for even questioning the Ukrainian administration. By the way, the last presidential election of whom uh, included a poisoning. So, <laughs> pro-Ukrainian Victoria Sparts. Oh yeah, she's a Russian agent. Yeah, what? she's oh in the pocket God. of Putin. That's what uh, some Indiana Democrats are saying. That's what the Indiana Progressive account run by failed uh, representative candidate Amy Neeling is putting forward. It's what? it's quite embarrassing. When in doubt, lie, 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 spin, spin, spin. I guess that's all they got left. My goodness, well, that's yeah. ridiculous. It really is. And now, now speaking of geopolitical pressures, there's also this is crap coming from China. Literally crap raining down from the sky. Space debris, and this isn't the first time this has happened. You know, NASA is at least a, respons a responsible global partner and makes sure that their rockets crash land in the ocean. It's, yeah, it's but, like planned. But you China know, just lets their the rockets... The China Communist Party alerted NASA and alerted the country that there were debris falling, didn't they? <laughs> uh, well, they, did, they didn't tell them where it was coming down. Oh, wait, you mean they just said, hey, there's debris falling, could be <laughs> over Kansas City, could be over the Sahara Desert, you know, who knows? Right, and we, I mean, literally there was a narrowing window in which uh, one of these space agencies was following the trajectory of the debris as it was, as it was coming to Earth just last night. Um, or Saturday night, I should say, earlier Sunday morning, just right after midnight. Anyway, recently. Recently. Um, and ultimately, it came down in the Indian Ocean, but it's kind of perilously close to civilization a couple of times. Some debris hit a village in Africa in May of 2020, and in May of 2021, just last year, you could see some of that space debris hurling over the head of Iowans as it ultimately crash-landed into the ocean. I mean, sure... The, the earth is covered by a lot of water, but you don't want to be taking risks with 20, 20 ton pieces of space crap just falling back through the atmosphere. I think this is the best <laughs> argument that I have found so far for the existence of the United States Space Force. Legitimately. Sure. I, I think yes. that a yes. military action to control the skies above the United States, and I mean above the skies of the United States, is incredibly important in case we need some kind of defense systems for when all of this failing infrastructure from nations, by the way, including some of the earlier United States geopolitical, or excuse me, geosynchronous satellites, 
we need some kind of protection to keep our falling and failing infrastructure from all over the planet at bay when it's coming down from space. No, that's actually a perfect example. That's not an aluminum foil thing to say. That's a legitimate concern if it's crashing into African villages. And currently there's very little uh, international recourse for what happens if these space debris fall from the sky. I mean, at least they're clear China would be liable, but it, you know, the question oh, remains. Oh, they'd be liable. Sure. Yeah. What, what are you, what are you going to say? So <laughs> how are you what is say? China actually going to do? Well, you're going to garnish their paycheck. Oh, That's how that works. sure. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, Senator a, a debt tut, collector. Tut slap of the wrist will totally get them. You're listening to 93 WIBC. Ethan Hatcher and Tony Kennett filling in for Tony Katz today. You can catch my podcast at Saturday night on the circle.fireside.fm. And you can catch Tony Kennett's uh, works at the Chalkboard Review. Uh, what was it? Chalkboardreview.com. Uh, you're listening to 93 WIBC. Stay tuned. In the next hour, we're going to go over thousands of uh, teaching jobs vacant in the state of Indiana and talk with Tony Kennett about why that might be going down. Florida, of course, has kicked off its tax-free holiday, and it's just frustrating to look. I, I got a lot of sunshine state envy to look down to our neighbors to the south and see how their Republican Party can seemingly kick things into gear, whereas ours is faltering. It's just really frustrating. And, of course, later in the hour, we'll be uh, discussing the House bill on uh, passing assault, wep uh, assault weapon ban and a lot more, including a new uh, song by country music star John Rich. Not necessarily the anti-woke anthem. I think he believes it is, but uh, we'll cover that all later on the show. So stay tuned to Tony Katz today on 93 WIBC.